Okay. So when you hear the word Job, and you think of Job in the Bible, what are some words, some thoughts that come to your mind? Unbelievable. Unbelievable? Okay. I, just, I can't believe that he went through all he did, and uh, he never resented God. Mm-hmm. I just, it's just hard to believe. Yeah, okay. Faithful. Faithful, okay. That's a very good word. He was faithful even though he lost everything. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Nobody's ever used the phrase, the patience of Job. Mm-hmm. You ever heard that? No, yeah. Okay. Uh, he demonstrates in his life patience. He just simply waits on God to do what God's going to do. Um, all those are really tragedy, uh, hardship, heartbreak, heartache, uh, disappointment, frustration, uh, bad counsel. <laughs> uh, all those things are included in the, in the book of Job. Uh, and so we come to Job here, and uh, Job in the Hebrew, uh, the name Job means persecuted one. Again, very appropriate, right? Uh, because of what he experienced. In Arabic, his name it means repent, which reminds me of my greatest, my favorite joke about repent. Uh, and stop me if you've heard it. So there was a farmer who his barn needed to be painted. And so he went through the yellow pages and found a painter and he asked the painter to come out and uh, had several of them and he took, of course took the lowest bid. And uh, the painter who came out, he began painting the barn and he of course wanted to make as much money as he could so he thinned down the paint quite a bit. And uh, painted the barn, met uh, the quote that he had given to the farmer. The farmer came out and looked at it, said he was satisfied, the painter went away. A couple days later it started to rain and all the paint washed off the side of the barn. And so the farmer called the uh, painter up and he came out and he said, you know, what what happened here? And he said, well, I got to admit to you, I thinned down the paint quite a bit and I was trying to save some money and so I probably thinned it down too much and when I put it on there, it, it just ran. He said, what would you like me to do? And the farmer said, I want you to repaint and thin no more. <laughs> Uh, which it comes from the Bible, not that terminology, but Jesus uh, said several times, repent and sin no more. And so I, every time I think of repentance, I think of that story. Uh, the book of Job, as we come to Job, it's a transitional book. Uh, We've talked about in the Old Testament, and I'm going to give you a quiz here when we get to Malachi, after Malachi, there's going to be a quiz on the Old Testament. The Old Testament is divided into four different sections, which are what? History is one. What's the first one? Law. 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 History. History. Gospel. No. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, they're all known as what? Poetry, and then finally? Prophecy, yes. Okay. So those are the four divisions. <laughs> was that a statement or a question? I wasn't really sure. How... <laughs> uh, so Job is a transitional book because it, it's kind of that transitional book between the history and the poetry. And so uh, that's the next line there. The book of Job is, is a transition from historical books to the poetic books. Uh, Job, of course... Um, was a, a historical figure. However, it also, uh, because of a lot of the writings that are throughout the book of Job, Job talks, his friends talk, God speaks. They consider a lot of it poetry. So uh, depending on who you talk to, there are some who would say, well, Job belongs in the historical books, and there's some who say Job belongs in the poetic books. Uh, but, I mean, you can see here, it's, it's really a transition. Uh, Job, of course, now when we think of this, uh, it follows Esther in our Bible. And we know that Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah, Esther all happened when the people come back from captivity from the Babylonians. But that's not the time Job lived. Uh, most Bible scholars believe that Job lived in the time of the patriarchs. So he lived during the times of Abraham, uh, maybe even before that, sometime between Adam and Abraham. So, so Job lived a long time before the placement of it is in the Bible here. Okay, So he didn't live during this time when they come back out of 
of captivity. He lived a long time before that. And, um, and so he is a, uh, a historical figure. And uh, here in chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. There was a man in the land of Uz, Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Okay, so here in these two verses, it gives us a description of Job. Number one, if you look in your Bible there, uh, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was what? What's the first thing it says? He was blameless. Yes, that goes in that blank there under the description of Job. He was blameless, uh, which means that he was undivided in his loyalty to high principles. Okay, so he is a guy who did not cheat on his taxes. He was a guy who, when he said he was going to do something, he followed through in his word. He didn't. He wasn't a guy who tried to find loopholes. He wasn't the guy who tried to squirm out of uh, promises that he made. If he made a promise, he was going to keep it. He was undivided in his loyalty to high principles. The second thing, he was not only blameless, but secondly, the Bible tells us he was upright. And in the original Hebrew, that word is actually translated straight. Okay, um, I, my my uh, parents used to always refer to politicians as crooked as a dog's hind leg. Okay, that is the exact opposite of Job. He was straight. He was not crooked. Uh, he was upright in everything that he did. Okay, uh, he goes on and he says he was blameless, he was upright, and then thirdly, he feared God. Feared God. And why do I write here after feared God, he had great wisdom? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yes. Um, and it is very smart to fear the Lord. Okay, And so he feared God. And according to uh, the Bible, it tells us that if I fear God, that is the beginning of wisdom. And so uh, because he, he was a man who feared God, uh, he had great wisdom. And then uh, it says here, fearing God and turning away from evil or shunned evil. He was a guy who feared God. And then the next one, he shunned evil. So his moral conduct was above reproach. He was the type of guy that if somebody were to say something about him that was ungodly or uh, uh, would whisper rumors about him, he was the type of guy where people, if they heard this about him, they would probably laugh. Because they would say, not Job, because he's a guy who uh, shuns evil. His conduct was beyond reproach. He never did anything that kind of skirted the line. See, he never even got close to the line because he was a guy who shunned evil. He turned, in, in the New American Standard, that's the one I use, it says he turned away from evil. So he, he saw evil here. He would turn and walk the exact opposite direction. Contrary to what most of us do today, right? Most of us will see evil and we, we ask the question, how close can I get to evil? You know, uh, I have students ask me all the time, you know, how far am I allowed to go with a boyfriend or girlfriend? Are we allowed to hold hands? Are we allowed to kiss? How far can we hug? How far can we go? And I always tell them, I say, you're asking the wrong question. The question shouldn't be, how close to sin can I get? The question should be, how close can I get to Jesus? Because when I get close to Jesus, I'm going to stay far away from sin. I'm going to know and be able to navigate the lines. Okay, It's kind of like going to the Grand Canyon and saying, all right, how close to the edge of the Grand Canyon can I get? I'm afraid of heights. I'm not going to go to the edge of the Grand Canyon because I don't want to fall in. I'm going to go as far back as I can from the edge so that I know that I'm not going to fall. And that's the kind of guy that uh, Job was. Okay, And so that's kind of his, his godly character. But then there are some other things that the Bible tells us here about him. Uh, the next one is that he was prosperous. In verse 2 it tells us that... <clears throat> My voice squeaked there. His moral conduct was above reproach. What do we put in that blank? Shunned evil. Oh. Or turned away from evil. Alright, and then the next line is prosperous. 
So we pick it up in verse 2. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. So as far as the eye could see, he was more prosperous than anyone else who was living during his time. Okay, so he had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen. So Seth, this means like he had four pickup trucks and a garage full of, uh, you know, hot rod cars, okay, and probably even had a racing car that he took to the dirt track on the weekends, okay, so he was he was very prosperous in all that he had, uh, he had large herds of animals and many servants, the next one is that he was a praying man he was a praying man. In verse 5, when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So he not only offered sacrifices for himself, he offered sacrifices for his children because he was fearful for them. Next, he was popular. If you turn over to the end of uh, Job, well, not really near the end, but uh, over in Job chapter 29. This is Job talking here in chapter 9 and uh, talks about all the great things that he had accomplished in his life. If you come to verse 21... To me, they listened and waited and kept silent for my counsel. After my words, they did not speak again, and my speech dropped on them. Um, you know, the, the uh, popular thing today is the mic drop. So you say something pretty profound, and you just drop the mic and walk off the stage. And that's kind of what, what uh, Job says here. After my words, they did not speak again, and my speech, poof, it was dropped on them. And so he was popular, so he was regularly consulted, and his opinion was always valued by everybody. Okay. Now, it's interesting if you know anything about the book of Job, if this was the type of man he was, he was the one who they listened and waited and kept silent to hear from him. However, if you know anything about the book of Job, as you read through the book of Job, all of his friends come and start sharing their lack of wisdom with him. And every time he speaks, they always tell him, no, Job, you're wrong. You're missing the mark or you don't know what you're talking about. And so uh, kind of a, a role reversal here. And then finally, Job was proven. At the end of Job in chapter 42, verses 10 through 12, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. So everything that he had in chapter 1, 7,000 sheep, now he had 14,000. 3,000 camels, now he had 6,000. 500 yoga of oxen, now he had 1,000. 500 female donkeys, now he had 1,000. So he, afforded, uh, uh, he increased all that Job had twofold. Then all of his brothers and all of his sisters and all who had known him before came to him and they ate bread with him in his house and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him and each one gave him one piece of money and each a gold ring. And so then it goes on here at the end of the chapter and it talks about all the ways that the Lord had blessed Job. So he was proven. He was restored back to not only just back to where he was but God restored to him even greater than what he was before all the turmoil happened in his life. Okay, so we come to the outline of Job, and it's really broken down into three sections. The first section is often referred to as the prologue, and that talks about Job's distress. In chapter 1, verse 13. Now, um, in verses 7 through 12 here, it talks about uh, Satan coming before the Lord. And uh, God says to Satan, he said, hey, have you ever checked out my man Job here? He's, he, I mean, he's got it going on. And Satan says to, says to God, he says, well, you know, the re only reason he's faithful to you is because you've given him all these things. 
And God, of course, says, well, no, uh, that's not the case. And so he allows Satan. He said, Satan says, well, let me take away everything that he has. And God says, okay, I'll let you do that. And we'll see what kind of a man he is. Uh, now, Job's faithfulness through all this, did it take God by surprise? No. Oftentimes we think, we say that God is testing us so that God can see how we respond. That is not what happens. Because if God is waiting to see how you and I are going to respond in a trial or a tribulation, uh, at that point he ceases to be God. He ceases to know all things. Many times I think God allows us to go through trials and tribulations so that we can see what kind of a person we are. Okay, God allows us to see that. And Pastor Jeremy said today, um, he was quoting somebody, and, and the point that he was making was that never once do we sit down and say, man, you know, I really got closest to God when things were going really well in my life. Or uh, God really showed me a whole lot of truth when things were going well in my life. And, and man, I learned a lot about myself when things were going well in our, my life. Uh, none of us can say that, right? All of us, I think, can say, you know, I learned the most about myself when I went through the difficulties. Uh, I, I got closest in my life to God when I was going through the tribulations. Uh, it was through the hardships of life that we really learned who God was and, and what kind of a person we were. Okay. Now, I will say this. I remember I was in... Uh, um, graduate school and I was taking a counseling class and the professor asked he said how many here have ever experienced depression or he asked us he said how many here have never experienced depression in your life like you've never experienced that in your life and I remember I put my hand up and there was a guy who was sitting next to me who at the time I thought was really old I think he was like 40 okay uh, <laughs> which now isn't that old for me okay but he, he I raised my hand and he leaned over to me and he said this he said it's just because you haven't lived long enough. And uh, now that I'm on the other side of 40, uh, I understand exactly what he meant. When you live long enough, you're going to understand what that means, that we all go through that. Every single one of us in this room tonight, we're in one of three conditions. Either we are here about ready to enter a storm in our life, or we are currently here and we are currently in a storm in our life, or we're here and we've just come out of a storm in our life. All of us are in one of those three spots. Okay? Either we're about ready to go into a storm or we're in a storm or we've just come out of a storm. And if, you know, if you've just come out of a storm, you know what you're going into. You're going into that phase where you're about ready to enter a storm. <laughs> because that's... The... <laughs> I don't want to go in any storm. <laughs> However... Uh, and it's just the nature of life, right? We all have those times in which there's times... Now listen, two-thirds of the time, things are going well, right? You're about ready to enter a storm or you've come out of a storm. Those are good times. It's when you're in the storm that's the bad time, okay? So that's only a third out of, out of uh, all of it. However, remember the story of Jesus and he told his disciples, he said, let's get in the boat, we're going to go to the other side. They get in the boat, Jesus falls asleep, and a storm comes. And they come, and Jesus is sleeping through this whole storm. And they wake him up, and they say, don't you care that we're about ready to die? And Jesus gets up, and he says, oh, you have little faith. And he commands the storm to stop. And the Bible says all the disciples were amazed. Now, when he told them to get into the boat, did he know they were going to go through a storm? Yeah, he knew it. And he said to them, he said, get in the boat, we're going to go to the other side. He knew a storm was coming, but he also knew that they were going to make it to the other side. Okay? I believe with all of my heart that God is sovereign over all circumstances of life. And I believe that there are times in which God specifically directs our boat to go through the storms. But I also believe that he is going to get us to the other side. That no matter what happens, we're going to get to the other side. There was a, uh, a reporter, he worked for NBC, and this was when the Olympics, were, I think were in uh, um, Spain, I think, or something. 
Barcelona, yeah, in Spain. And uh, he was a, he was a sportscaster, and he was hoping to go. And you know, this was the first time the dream team was put together. Uh, uh, we don't talk about Magic Johnson on this team much, but you know, Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley and these great famous basketball players, and they were going to go. And and so this guy was hoping he would get the assignment to cover basketball and see these guys, or track and field, which is the highlight of the Summer Olympics. But he got his assignment, and it was rowing and boating. And he thought, man, of all the things. And, and so he thought, well, okay, if I'm going to do this. He, so he went around and he started interviewing all these rowers and stuff. And he was asking them about things that may happen while they're rowing. He said, what would happen if you're rowing and a storm comes? And he said, overwhelmingly, the rowers would respond, that's outside of my boat. He said, well, what if you're rowing and your oar breaks? And he said, they would say, that's outside my boat. Well, what if you're rowing and you see the other team getting ahead of you? He'd say, they'd say, that's outside my boat. And they, the point they were making is the only thing I can control is what's inside my boat. After the Olympics, he wrote a book, you know what it was entitled? Outside that's outside my boat, yeah. <laughs> okay. I can't control what's outside my boat. What I can control is how I respond to it. What I can control is when my boat is in the middle of the storm, I can control who I run to. When my boat is in the midst of the storm, I can control what's outside the boat, but I can control what's in my boat. And I can control how my heart responds, who I draw close to, uh, and, and all of those things. But So we really got way off track there. But anyways, uh, in verses 7 through 12, uh, this is where Satan comes and he says, allow me to do this. And, and God says, okay, you can do all these things except you can't touch his body. Okay, So we pick it up in verse 13. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house... A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Okay? So, uh, his, his servants are out there, and they say, All right, th- these people have come, and they've taken all your servants. They've killed your servants. They've taken all your animals. And then in verse 16, While he was still speaking... Okay, so he hadn't even finished telling what has happened with the servants and with the animals. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So while the one guy's saying, Hey, all your donkeys or all your oxen have been taken, your servants have been killed, while he's still saying that, another comes and says, Hey, fire came down out of heaven, burned up all your sheep, your slaves or your servants are, are, are killed there. And then in verse 7, while he was still speaking another also came and said the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you while he was still speaking another also came and said your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in her oldest brother's house and behold a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died and I alone have escaped to tell you then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Imagine receiving all of that news at once. That's what happened. It all came at once. You've lost everything that you have. You've lost your family. All your sons, all your daughters, all your animals, all your servants. You've lost it all. And the Bible says Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, and worshipped. And he said, in verse 21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. If you experienced all that, your whole family's been wiped out, your whole life savings has been wiped out, is the first thing you would do show up and worship? I don't know, it would be hard. But he said, even though all this has happened, blessed be the name of the Lord. He said, thank you, Lord, for being who you are. Because again, this did not take God by surprise. He knew what was going to happen. 
Okay, and then in chapter two, uh, Job uh, loses his health, and in chapter three, uh, Job uh, shares. He begins to pour his heart out uh, to God, and so uh, Job's distress. Uh, and I jumped over this really quick. Uh, letter A underneath that is prosperity. He lost his prosperity. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, adversity, chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 13. So he loses all these things, he loses his health. <laughs> and then perplexity, chapter 3, of verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 Why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb, and expire? Why did the knees receive me, and why the breasts that I should suck? And so he's saying, listen, it would have been better for me at this point if I would have just died instead of living this whole life and having all this taken away. It doesn't make any sense to Job. He can't figure out why this is happening. Have you ever asked that question? Why do bad things happen to good people? Charles Stanley will say, show me a good person. <laughs> because none of us are good. Okay, and then so uh, the second part of Job is dialogue, and that's Job's defense. Chapters four through chapter thirty-seven. All it is is Job and his three his buddies. They're sitting around and they are talking and uh, doing some navel gazing. You know what that is? And you sit there and just think and think and think. Okay. Um, that's what it is. Okay? So that's what they're doing. They're kind of talking back and forth about philosophy and about why these things would happen. And then the epilogue is Job's deliverance. Chapter 38 through 42. <clears throat> I want to read chapter 38. And I want you to think about these words. This is God speaking to Job. Think about all that's happened to Job. Think about bad things that happened in your life. And then allow God to speak these words to you. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Come on, man up is what God's saying. And I will ask you and you instruct me. Okay, so God said, I'm going to ask you some questions. I want you to answer me. Verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. So he's saying, Job, when I formed this whole world, where were you? Okay, and of course, Job was nowhere to be found. In verse 5, who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were the, its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who enclosed the sea with the doors when bursting forth went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. So God saying, I was the one who said where the oceans were going to start and end. Verse 12, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked the recesses of the deep? Have, you, have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the way of the dwelling of the light, the darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? Where is the way that the light is divided, or the east wind scattered on the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the flood, or a way for the thunderbolt, to bring rain or on a land without people, on a desert without a man in it? To satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the seeds of grass to sprout. Has the rain a father? 
Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb has come the ice and frost of heaven? Who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone, and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. Can you bind the chains of of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? These are the stars in heaven. Can you lead forth the constellation in its season, and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens, or fix their rule over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, so that an abundance of water will cover you? Can you send forth lightning, that they may go, and say to you, Here we are. Who has put wisdom in the innermost being, or given understanding to the mind? Who can count the clouds by wisdom, or tip the, tip the water jars of the heavens? When the dust hardens into a mass and the clods stick together, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? When they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair, who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? Now all these are rhetorical questions, right? We know who does all this. It's God. And so basically what God is saying to Job, he's saying, Job, when Job has all these questions about why is this happening and, and I don't, this doesn't make any sense to me, it may have been better off for me not to even been been born. And God says to him, he says, you're not the one in charge here. You're not the one that the world revolves around. He said, I am the one who is sovereign. I am the one who is in charge. And if I see fit to allow these things to happen to you, who are you to argue with me about that? That gets pretty deep there. Because how often times when we experience hardships and difficulties do we say, why? 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 Do you think we'll ever have an answer to that? Maybe one day we see the Lord. Maybe. That's, a, that's the operative word there. Maybe. Nowhere does God promise us the reason why 9-11 happened. Nowhere does God promise us why uh, uh, Hurricane Katrina would devastate an entire American city. Nowhere does God tell us that he would tell us why earthquakes and natural disasters and death and, and disease. Nowhere does God ever tell us why we would give us an answer as to why these things have happened. That's a tough pill to swallow. Because God doesn't, we don't, we're not We don't deserve an answer for why. Because what he just said here in chapter 38, he's saying, I'm over all of these things. You know, how oftentimes as parents, no, you guys are out of this equation, okay? How oftentimes as parents did you have your children come to you and say, why? And your response was what? Because I said so. Because I have the authority to tell you no. And so when we come to God and say, why? God has every right to say, because I'm God and you're not. I know that's a tough pill to swallow sometimes, and it's not gives you all those warm and fuzzy feelings that we always want. But nowhere are we guaranteed to have the answers. Okay, And then uh, the epilogue, Job's, Job's deliverance, uh, uh, 38 to 42. Uh, letter A, God humbles Job. And we saw a little bit of that in verse 38. And then letter B, God honors Job. So, honors, honors, yes. All right. Some characters and conversations in Job. The first conversation that we see is between whom? Satan. Satan and God, yes. Satan and God, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. In verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came along, came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Um, I know this really doesn't fit with what we're talking about, but in verse 7, Satan says, I have been roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Uh, Evil, evil does not rest. Okay? That's why uh, uh, Peter tells us he's like a 
roaring lion seeking whom he's going to devour. It's that lion that's walking back. We were at a zoo one time and uh, in the Erie Zoo and there was a, um, yes, Erie has a zoo. Um, I can't remember what it was. It was like a lion. It was like a big cat. I can't remember if it was a hyena, a lion. What's that? A cheetah. It might have been a cheetah. I can't remember what. But it was walking back and forth. And me and Holden were standing there. And it was walking back and forth. And it would walk this way. And it would not take our eyes off Holden and I. And I said to the zookeeper, the guy who was standing there, I was like, what's going on here? And he goes, well, he's hungry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so he would just walk back and forth. And he would not take his eyes off of us. <laughs> okay. And so that's the idea that, that the Bible tells us, that he is like this roaring lion who's, who's always pacing back and forth, seeking someone whom he's going to devour. Okay, And that's, I know that's a side issue here, but Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, <coughs> fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? And you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you in your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. A couple big things I think we need to see here. The Bible tells us in verse 6 that God was there and all the sons of God came to present themselves before them and Satan came among them. Uh, there have been times that I've heard like uh, illustrations of this that you know God didn't know Satan was showing up and Satan kind of sneaks in among all the angels and he rips off his hood and says, Ah! and surprises God, that is not what happened, okay? Uh, God knew exactly where Satan was. He knew exactly what he was going to do. Um, and, and second of all, I know probably you've heard it, and I think I've even said it sometimes, uh, that God cannot even look upon sin. Well, how is these talks face-to-face -face with Satan here, okay? Um, God despises sin, absolutely, and that's why he made a way, that's why Jesus had to die. Um, but anyways, that was a whole side note there. Uh, and then I want you to notice here what, uh, in verse 11, Satan is talking to God. And, and Satan says to God, now, you know, Job only serves you because you've done all these great things for him. In verse 11, he tells God, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Satan does not have any authority over anyone unless God gives it to him. Okay? And so here, Satan knows his rightful place. He knows that there's nothing he can do unless he has God's permission. That's why he tells God, you do this. And of course, God turns around and says, Behold, all that he has, I'm going to give to your power. He's, it's now in your power. The only thing God says, do not touch, do not put forth your hand on him. And eventually, uh, we know that Job experiences physical difficulties too. And uh, that's where his wife finally turns on him and says, Why don't you just curse God and die? Okay, I'll tell you this, I can experience a lot of opposition in my life, like all of you could come to me right now and say you hate my guts and I'm terrible and I smell funny and all those things. I could probably handle all that, I can handle a lot of criticism, but if my wife were to tell me, man you smell funny, I'd go jump in the shower then. Okay, <laughs> uh, To lose the support of your wife, uh, it's, it would be tough to go on. And so here, even she has turned her back on him, but yet he remains faithful. Okay, anyways. Uh, and then chapters 3 through 37 is Job and friends. Not Fox and friends, but Job and friends. All right, then all these guys have some really cool names. The first one is Eliphaz. E-L-I-P-H-A-Z. And uh, Eliphaz shows up uh, in chapter, um, well, chapter 2, really. It says that they show up. Um, but anyways, Eliphaz uh, tells Job he needs to uphold holiness, purity, and justice. 
The second friend, he begins speaking in chapter 8. His name is Bildad, B-I-L-D-A-D. If you got, you know, when you guys get married and if the Lord has children in your future, great names right here. Eliphaz, <laughs> Bildad, okay? Bildad believed suffering was a direct result of sin. And he speaks in chapter 8, chapter 18, and chapter 25. I used to think that as a kid. Like, uh, I remember... There'd be times I'd get up in the middle of the night and I'd walk and I'd stub my toe on something and I'd be like, oh, what did I do today that I deserve that, okay? But how oftentimes do we still think that even today, even as adults? Ma'am, that happened, what did I do wrong, okay? And that's what Bildad is telling Job. He's saying, Job, the reason why you're doing this is because you must have sinned or your children sinned or there's sin somewhere that needs to be rectified. Now, that is contrary, direct contrary to what God does, right? God doesn't, especially today, God does not judge us because of our sin. He, bad things don't happen to us because of our sin. Now, don't get me wrong, there are natural consequences to our sin, yes. But God does not have folly fall on us because of our sin because we live in a time of grace. God is a graceful, gracious, loving God. Now, um, that's not saying that Paul says that. He said, shall we sin more so that grace may continue abound? And he says, God forbid. We should never do that. We should never take God's grace for granted like that. But that's not how God operates, and that's what Bildad here is telling uh, Job. And we see this also in Jesus' days uh, when uh, he was uh, healing the lame man, and they said to his disciples, said to him, and he said, which person sinned? Was it this man or his father that sinned that caused him to be like this? And Jesus refutes that. He said it wasn't any of that cause. He is like this right now so that God will receive glory because he knew he was going to go and heal this man. So this man was lame. I think, I personally believe this man was lame from birth because God knew that Jesus was going to show up and he was going to heal him, and he was going to receive glory for it. Okay, But anyways, that's neither here nor there either. But anyways, God allows this to happen because he knows that Job is going to be faithful, and in the end, Job's going to be elevated and receive even more than what he had to begin with. And then letter C, the third friend, is Zophar, Z-O-P-H-A-R. See, aren't these great names? <laughs> Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. And uh, he, kind of like Bildad in chapters 11 and chapter 20, is urging Job to repent and thin no more. <laughs> and then uh, the final one, he's, he's the youngest one, and he actually says that. He says, I kept my mouth shut for a long time because I was so much younger than the rest of you. Uh, but... Uh, in chapter 32 through 37, that is Elihu, E-L-I-H-U. Okay. So chapter 32 through 37 is Elihu. If you look at chapter 32, then these three men, that's Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, then these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, of the family of Ram burned. Against Job, his anger burned because he justified himself before God. And his anger, anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet had con condemned Job. Now Elihu had wanted, waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. So Elihu spoke out and said, I am young in years and you are old. Therefore, I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. And then for the next five chapters, he tells him what he thinks. <laughs> he talks and talks and talks and talks. All right. Now, why do good people suffer? We're going to take uh, Job's example here. Okay. And uh, number one is Job's favor. 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 F-A-V-O-R. 
Think about everything that Job had. Pretty wealthy guy. I mean, he'd be the richest man in LaGrange today. <laughs> and I want you to think about it in comparatively speaking. If you're an American, if you just simply live in America, you are the top 1% wealthiest people in the world. Okay? Um, you go any place else other than America, and yes, we have homelessness and stuff here. But, I mean, they're not living in garbage heaps, okay, and finding food and shelter and clothing in, in garbage heaps. He was very wealthy. And you would think, from the all, all outward perspective, that Job had it all going on. But the point that I want to make is that even though he had everything, he also lost everything. And the point is this, is that no one, no one is immune to suffering. Because we live in this world, we will have suffering. Some of it as a result of our own sin. Some of it just simply because we live in a sinful world. Why do people get cancer today? Because we live in a sinful world. Because it's part of the curse. People die today because it's part of the curse. Okay? He had everything the world could ever... Uh, any, everything the world would say is, is what you need. He had it all. But yet it didn't keep him immune from suffering. Okay, number two, Job's fall. He loses his oxen, he loses his sheep, he loses his donkeys, he loses his children, he loses his health. Uh, in uh, chapter two, it says that he had boils on his skin so bad that he would just take a piece of pottery and he would scrape it and uh, all that oozing and uh, pus and... Uh, I'm trying to really make this really disgusting. I can't think of any more words. Um, several years ago, I had poison ivy really bad on the back of my legs, like in the creases of my knees, in the back of my knees. And every time I took a step, it hurt. And uh, it was, uh, that's the joke in our house, there was a lot of weeping and oozing and everything coming out of it. And uh, my wife decided one day to take uh, rubbing alcohol and rub it on that. Yeah. That's about the way my eyes got when she put it on me, yes. <laughs> but I can't imagine having that type of stuff all over your entire body, and he was just taking a piece of pottery and just scraping it all off his body, okay? And so that's where he was. So he loses his health, and then he loses the support of his wife. He's lost everything at this point, okay? He had it all, and now he's lost it all. Which leads me to my third one, and that's Job's faithfulness. I want you to see, there's a very interesting word usage in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Verse 9, his wife comes to him and says what? You still hold fast to your integrity. You curse God and die. In verse, uh, verse uh, 10, Job says, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Do you notice the emphasis I made there? His wife was saying what? You, you, you. Job was saying we. We. We're, we're still in this together. <laughs> okay? Even though she didn't really want to be in this together anymore. He said we're still in this together. He was faithful to his wife. In the fact that he said, you know, we have accepted good. Shall we not also accept the bad? And also then he, he shows his faithfulness to God in the fact that it says after he makes a statement to his wife, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. When you go through adversity, how faithful are you to God? I want you to write the word trails or trials. Where? 
on your paper. Write word. word. Yeah, write the word trials. T R A I L S. Write the word trials. T R A I L S. Write the word trials. T R A I L S. Trails. How many wrote trails? How many wrote trails? Okay. <laughs> I wanted you to do that. I wanted you to do that. You wrote trials? Okay. But I want I want you to write. I want you to, now. I want you to write trails underneath it. <laughs> What's the difference between trials and trails? Trails is something you follow. Okay, but in the, in the word, what's the difference between trails and tri trials and trials? Huh? The I, I move. I move. Trials is T R I A L S. Okay. Yes, I move because listen, I, I'm going to bring this all. Hopefully, this all makes sense to you. Why I did this? Because oftentimes our trials will lead us down trails. And these trails are going to lead one of two directions. Either the trail is going to lead us to God, or it's going to lead us away from God. Right? You, you all know people probably that experienced hardships, and they have taken the trail that led away from God, and they've blamed God for everything that's happened. And you also know that there are people who've experienced trials, and they've moved the eye, the I moved, and they take the trail that leads to God. One thing I learned when I was a kid was my mom is a robust woman. And, uh, <laughs> um, fluffy. Fluffy, yes, okay. <laughs> um, really, I don't think we should be recording this anymore. Uh, anyways, um, she would always, she had this uh, paddle that was probably about this long. It was a piece of wood that she whittled down, and if you got paddled with it, your name got put on it, and then like strike marks next to it. <laughs> my wife's name's on it, my children's name's on it. So she still continues to use this thing, okay? And uh, it's right next to the pencil sharpener, next to the thermostat. That's where she keeps it, okay? Um, Monster <laughs> Okay, there you go. <laughs> Seth's name on it? You don't put names on it? Okay, all right. Um, I have cousins whose names are on it. My brother's name's on it. I think my dad's name's on it. Okay. Um, but one thing I learned when I was a kid was when it was time to get spanked, if I tried to run away from her, ooh, that would hurt. Because she would, she got, I mean, she should have played pro tennis. She's got such a great backhand. She could grab me, I mean, and she had like go-go gadget arms. Like I could be on the <laughs> other side of the house and it felt like she could still get me. But I learned that if I would run to my mother and put my arms around her, it was much harder. It didn't hurt quite as bad when I got the, the paddle on the butt. The same is true with God. When we experience trials and hardships, when I run from God, it's going to hurt a lot more. When I run to God in the midst of my trials and my hardships, it doesn't hurt quite as bad. And that's what Job learned here. So he said, will we not accept the good as well as the, the uh, evil that, that comes? Or He doesn't use the word evil. I don't want to strike that. Uh, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Okay, Because God doesn't, isn't the author of evil. And then uh, the next one is Job's friends. Now, of course, hopefully when you and I experience adversity, that we have friends that will rally around us and walk with us and shoulder up next to us. And I hope, too, that we are all friends that when we have a friend who's experienced adversity, that we will shoulder up next to them. Uh, we can go and be with them. Um, we can just simply pray for them, not be like Job's friends and think you're a know-it-all, but just simply, many times when you're going through adversity, you just want somebody who's going to be there with you, right? Somebody who's going to just hold you when you cry. Someone who's going to walk with you when it hurts. And so, uh, friends. And then uh, next is Job's frustration. The root of our frustration in adversity comes 
I want to read this right. The root of our frustration comes when we think God exists for us. God does not exist for us. We exist for God. Many times we treat God as a big cosmic vending machine, right? If I put the right money in and I push the button, the candy bar comes out. What happens, Seth, when you push the button and the candy bar doesn't come out? What's your first reaction? Yeah, then you shake the machine, you kick it, you, you punch it, all those things. Okay, many times we treat God the same way. We think if I do my right, if I go to church and I give money to the church and I read my Bible and I pray, and uh, then I should just get what I think I, I deserve. But the moment I don't get what I deserve, or I get some, this is the bad thing, like you put your money in, you press like B7 and you end up, and you wanted the Snickers bar and you end up with like the Cheetos. Yeah, you get the wrong thing. Okay, and you get really upset over that. And many times we treat God the same way. I put the right thing in, and if He doesn't give me what I want, or gives me what gives me something I don't think I want or think that I need, we get so upset. But it's not about me. God doesn't exist for me. I exist for Him. Okay, and so that really is the root of all of our frustrations. And then uh, Job's folly. At the end there, Job's folly. Um, When I read that, chapter 38, prior to this, all the way from chapter 3 to 37, Job's talking, his friends talk, Job talks, his friends talk, Job talks, his friends talk. Chapter 38, God shows up and does all the talking. Do you hear anything from Job after that? God's asking all these questions, but Job doesn't answer him because he knows the answer. When God shows up, man should be quiet. Okay, And what God is doing here in those chapters is He's showing Job the folly of his reasoning. He's showing him the folly of why he's even contemplating that all these bad things would happen to him. God's reminding him, I'm the one who is in charge. Okay, Now, at the end here, I have... It's not a fill in the blank, so uh, you don't have to worry about filling anything in. How to endure suffering. The wrong ways and the right ways. And I'm going to insult your intelligence and read this to you. The wrong ways. Number one, demand to know why. Why is this happening? The right way is to remember who is in charge. The wrong way is to withdraw from God. Right? It always amazes me how, why Christian people, when they go through difficulties, the first thing they stop doing is, or the first, the first, some of the first things they stop doing is they stop reading their Bible, they stop praying, they stop attending church. Those are the worst things you can do during those times. Okay, Remember, the right way is that He is with you. Uh, the wrong way is to withdraw from others. The right way is to keep fellowship with others. The wrong thing to do is to be impatient with God and say, God, I wish this would be over right now and why don't you put an end to this. Uh, The right thing is to wait for His perfect timing. The wrong way is to give up in despair. Just throw your hands up, wave the white flag, say, I can't do this anymore. The right thing is to do is to wait upon the Lord. Uh, The wrong way is to indulge yourself. Uh, This is specifically to the women in the room. Um, Did you ever have your heart broken? Like a guy you maybe you were in love with, broke up with you. No? Never had that happen? You guys were all the heartbreakers? Okay. All right. I see what kind of crowd I'm dealing with now. Okay. I don't know if this happens. This is why I was going to ask. I don't know if this happens, but every time in the movies that happens, what's the girl do in the movies? She sits down on the couch, eats like a gallon of chocolate ice cream. Okay. Never happened to you? Okay, well, that's good. That's good. I'm glad that's never happened. Uh, I don't need that to do that. Oh, okay. Uh, But oftentimes, that's just the indication that oftentimes when we go through hardship, we just simply say, I'm just going to indulge myself. I'm going to do what I want to do now, and who cares? And that's not what we're supposed to do. Uh, we are supposed to keep pure. And that's what it continues to say over and over again about Job here, is that he did not sin with his lips. He continued to be pure. Uh, The wrong way is to become angry. And the right thing to do is to master your anger. And then the wrong way is to become depressed. 
The right thing to do is to hope in the Lord. Questions, comments, complaints, snide remarks?